The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I am Capital Weekly Editor-in-Chief Rich Eisen, joined, as always, by my partner in crime, Tim Foster. How are you doing today, Tim? I'm well, Rich. Thanks. And we have a really special guest with us today. We're really excited about this. Um, if you paid attention to the Top 100 this year, and I know you all did, of course, absolutely paid attention, you might have noticed a new name. Uh, she was number 27 on our list this year. Uh, she is the Chief of Staff for the California State Attorney General, Rob Bonta. Viviana Becerra, how are you doing this morning? Doing great. It's a Friday. Made it through another week. <laughs> and, and what a week, as we're uh, recording this course, it was the end of session. So everybody is kind of at their wits end and probably needing even more coffee today than normal. But so thank you for taking some time out today to uh, welcome us into your office so we can chat with you a little bit. So I'm really uh, pleased, like I said, to have you with us because as I was talking with folks around the Capitol when we were putting together the Top 100, multiple people brought your name up as somebody who really we should be paying attention to. And the more I look into your backstory, the more impressed I am because you're very young, comparatively, I suppose, but you're young for this position, I guess is the way to put it. We're going to talk about that a little bit. And when I looked at the list of programs here in the AG's office that you oversee, it, it's really kind of stunning. I'm not going to read the whole list. Just trust me when I tell you it's about as long as my arm. So um, I was hoping, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know uh, you said your parents are uh, immigrants uh, from Mexico, your first generation here. Tell us more about yourself. How did you get from A to B here in the uh, government? Attorney General's office. I almost said I almost said governor. That's a Freudian slip. I, that's, I meant Attorney General. From A to B to the AG. Yeah, yeah there we go. Um, so first and foremost, thank you both. Um, truly, truly was an honor to be listed in the Capital Weekly Top 100. I mean, that is a list that um, whether you care about lists or not, folks are always looking forward to, to seeing who's going to be on it. And I think you all have gotten a lot of feedback about how this year um, really was different from previous years, seeing a lot of different people, um, more women, more women of color, more younger folks. And honestly, I had no idea until I started getting some outreach uh, from folks and and really was honored. I mean, my family was so proud and they could have only dreamt for um, their daughter to be working in and around the capital community um, and let alone being recognized for the work that she's doing. And so... Born and raised here in Sacramento, um, I think I always grew up really, it was instilled in me to always give back to your community, give back to people who needed help because one day you may need it yourself. And so community service was always a big part of who I was growing up. And education was another thing that was really instilled in me. So my grandmother, Nena, who is, you know, rest in peace, no longer here with us, but was a second mom to me. And... She was one of 10, um, immigrated from Mexico, her family did, and they worked in the, the field. Some of her brothers were, in, you know, came to Sacramento, to California through the Bracero program. She herself worked in the fields. All of them were blue collar jobs. And education to them was the key to success pathway out. 
you know, they, even though they themselves didn't have it, it was kind of the key to being in an office at a, you know, under air conditioning and not having <laughs> to do the backbreaking work yeah. day in and day out. And even though they themselves knew that they wouldn't be able to achieve that, they worked so hard to give that dream to their kids, to their grandkids. And so knew going to college wasn't necessarily an option. I was going to go. Um, chose to go to UC Santa Barbara, where, you know, it's one of the most beautiful schools that I could have chosen um, and really learned a lot about myself, about what I wanted to do. Took my first political science class, had a great professor, loved it, and had also volunteered. I remember walking precincts for then Congresswoman Lois Capps, Senator Hannah Jackson, Assemblymember Doss Williams, and really got exposed to legislators, to um, politics to getting out the vote, why it was so important to be involved. Um, cause folks were making decisions on behalf of Californians that were then impacting you. Now, were you aware of that at all when you lived in Sacramento? I so mean, Sacramento I knew the Capitol a- was in my backyard right here and, and home, but, and you learned about it in class, right? But you didn't fully know what happened in that beautiful white building. What actually, you know, who was there, who was mm-hmm. making all these decisions, what was going on? And then in college, you you know, you're a little older, you're being exposed to more. Um, I remember I went to Washington, D.C. I did an internship while I was at UC Santa Barbara. I worked at, for the Sierra Club. I did an internship there. And I remember just talking to our lobbyist there. She told talked to me about her pathway um, and got a little exposure from national politics and then it was actually my senior year that we had Capitol Fellows, the for the Sac- Sacramento State Capitol Fellows Program, come and speak to our class, encourage folks to apply. And I remember being like, this is such a prestigious fellowship program um, that had been recognized, you know, throughout the nation. And hundreds of people were applying to each of the, you know, four programs they had. They had the executive, judicial, assembly, and senate. I was mostly interested in the Senate and Assembly and said, well, let me try. I'll apply. And I remember I got waitlisted to both, but then got a call from the Senate um, that I had gotten accepted. And so that was the next step in joining um, the fellowship. I knew I had $40,000 in, in debt and student loans that I'd be moving back to Sacramento regardless. And to be able to have my first gig working in the Capitol, I worked for Senator Lonnie Hancock, who's represented the East Bay area, Senator Skinner's current seat, and just got real exposure. Like nothing you can learn in class could prepare you for this, but you're actually staffing bills and they're treating you like a legislative aide. Had incredible mentors within that office. And I remember at the end of that year, um, because you get a stipend through Sacramento State, so the office wasn't able to keep me on. They didn't have it in their budget to hire me permanently in that office. I'm like, okay, now what? Now I'm walking precincts, just trying to introduce myself to more folks, let them know that I'm looking, that I want to stay in the Capitol because I loved it so much. And it was actually at my high school. Um, they have an annual wine tasting fundraiser at Christian Brothers. And I see a lobbyist that had come in to Senator Hancock's office. They were lobbying me on a, a bill that was going to be an elections committee. And I recognize him, Steve Cruz. Um, and I thought he probably doesn't even remember me. But let me just go say hi. So I did, not expecting anything out of it, just wanting to go say hello. And he asked me, he's like, oh, what are you doing now? And I said, look, you know, the fellowship just ended. I'm kind of on the job hunt. 
walking precincts, um, hoping to land something in the Capitol just because I enjoyed it so much. He goes, have you ever thought about lobbying? I said, yeah, eventually, but I literally just graduated college, did a fellowship. You know, don't you have to work in the Capitol three to five years at least before you step out and start lobbying? I don't know why that was in my head, but it just was. And he goes, did you learn the legislative process? And I go, well, yeah, you know, I staffed four bills, got exposure to it. He's like, did you make relationships with people? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. He goes, well, if you're interested, we're looking to hire a lobbyist and I would you love everything we need. Yeah, I would love for you to send me your resume and to interview with each of the partners or four partners. And so I did was not expecting <laughs> to get a job interview at my you know old high school uh, wine tasting event, but did so. And then I end up getting the job and I'm like, oh, gosh, now what? You know, back then it was a top 10 lobbying firm. Um, they were involved in everything and had to figure out, you know, <laughs> how to do the job. And that job really tested me. There was definitely challenges and, you know, me being young, young woman of color and having to meet with legislators with the client on a difficult issue. And there were times where, like, where's your boss? Who are you? Oh. Like, you know, like why uh -huh. you know, your boss is supposed to be here. They asked for this meeting. Like, and I said, well, I'm here and I'm here with the client and I just need 10 minutes of your time. So things like that, going to late night events and, you know, overnight events, they just really exposed a whole different world to me. Um, that was difficult <laughs> and challenging. Now, what, I, in what sense do you mean that? I mean, in that it was hard to balance all of it, right? The social life with actually the work that you're doing and making sure that I'm overprepared because people aren't going to take me seriously. And how old were you at this time? God, I must have been, so I graduated at 21, fellowship was 22, lobbying at 23 years old. Wow. So 23, 24 is when I'm lobbying. And we're, when you were in the Capitol, I'm assuming you were not running into other 23-year-old lobbyists much. Lobbyists, no. Other staffers, other folks in the fellowship, mm -hmm. I mean, yes, but as far as lobbying, no. Well, you know, it's interesting because the Capitol, if you walk the halls of the Capitol now, staff just seems to be getting younger and younger and younger, mm -hmm. right? But the lobbying core, not so much. They, there's still a lot of veterans in the lobbying core. So even 10 years ago, that would have stood out to have somebody your age handling key legislation, uh, you know, in the building. That That's actually really impressive. I remember folks being like, you went from your fellowship to third house? Like, that's a huge jump. I was like, yeah, I know. I'm feeling it. <laughs> but, well, and what sorts, of, uh, what sorts of areas were you lobbying on? So many different ones. So cannabis was one, human trafficking. We had a pro bono client, um, the Coalition to Abolish Slavery and Trafficking. So I was working to get funding into the budget for um, human trafficking victim services. It was actually the first year ever that California had invested money. So we got $10 million then. I think every year they're now. Um, prioritizing it in the budget. Um, I worked on overtime pay for farm workers. That was another uh, pro bono client was helping United Farm Workers. Um, the end of life bill was one of my big oh, bills yeah. that I worked on. And we got that passed through special session. That was, they had hired our firm to lobby the Latino members, um, which was difficult because mm -hmm. they were hearing from 
their Catholic parishes and and that one was my dad passed away from cancer and from the time he was diagnosed to when he passed was 10 days and I remember you know I was at Santa Barbara but how much pain he was in and our, you know some of the folks we'd bring to the Capitol like hearing their story like here they are lobbying their last days of their life to try and get this bill that's not going to impact them it's going to impact future people um, who are having to travel out of state to Oregon to be able to get, uh-huh. to get this. That was one. Um, tribal issues, helping them get, you know, renew their contracts with the governor's office. So many different things. We're a contract lobbying firm. So, so many different clients. And, but I remember like, wow, we're involved in all the top issues. Our firm, even if I wasn't necessarily working on it, involved in all the top issues uh, impacting California. Well, it would seem that that would really set you up for when you stepped back into the building. Yes. <laughs> you would have perspective that's pretty broad there compared to maybe somebody who had not been in both those roles. Totally. And I think, I mean, that was something I'm like, is it better to like pick an issue area and really become an expert? Or is it okay that I'm, you know, literally working on 14 different clients, 14 plus of different issue areas? And just depends, right, on what it is that you're wanting to do. But after working almost two and a half years as a lobbyist, I then was like, I really want to go back into the Capitol. It, you know, the fellowship was a year, went by fast, but there's still still more that I want to learn from, you know, within the building. And it was then that, and I had worked with Assemblymember Rob Bonta at the time, who um, was big on cannabis issues. So I remember working with him on that lane and I just remember being like, oh, our, like his values are great. All the issues that he's doing, he's also, you know, working on really big pieces of legislation. So I interviewed and I remember folks telling me, don't go back for a legislative aid position. You need to be a ledge director. Like you're, you've been lobbying, you need to go for ledge director roles. And I remember being like, the ledge director roles that are available are for legislators that I don't, you know, my values don't really align. It's not necessarily what they're working on is exciting me to me. Um, I'm willing to take the risk to join as a legislative aide for some of the Rabanta. I remember we interviewed, we hit it off and I get the job. And then within two weeks, the chief of staff at the time who had also encouraged me to apply, Dean Grafilo, had gotten appointed to become the director of Department of Consumer Affairs. So he told me he'd be leaving in two weeks because <laughs> his appointment was going to be announced. And I remember thinking, oh, man, maybe I'll go for ledge director if they happened to, to promote our ledge director to chief of staff. And I remember folks saying, eh, I don't know if you're ready yet for ledge director. Like, Assembly Rabanta introduces, like, 30 bills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's real, you know... So it's your first year back into the Capitol. I think you, you need more experience as a legislative aide, and then you'll be ready in maybe two years. And I remember the legislative director at the time gets promoted to chief of staff, Evan Quarter, and he's like, no, you're absolutely ready for ledge director. Like, I'll talk to the assembly member, but you need to go for it, and you can do it. So I did, and he's all, I'll help you. Um, and so then he becomes chief of staff. I become legislative director do that for two years. He leaves. Or actually, before he leaves, I start getting contacted from folks that they want me to start applying for chief of staff roles within the Capitol and that they gave my list to the speaker's office to interview because there's a whole flux of new members that are coming in. They need more chief of staffs. And I'm like, 
I'm totally fine as ledge director. Like, you know, I don't even know fully what chief of staffs do. Their job seems stressful. They come in, at least my, you know, I have the legislative package to worry about. And it was lobbyists like Paula Treat, who's oh. a huge mentor to me, Mandy Lee, who were like, you're ready. You'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. You can do this. We already gave your name to the speaker's office. So, and I remember, okay, I should tell, you know, my boss, just I give him a heads up if I'm going to do these interviews. I remember him coming to the Capitol. So his district was Alameda, Oakland, and San Leandro. But he came to Sacramento just for the day to walk around the Capitol with me to talk and said, look, I'm not surprised why they're interviewing you. I want you to interview for chief of staff positions. You're absolutely ready for it, and you would make an incredible chief of staff. Um, so, now How old were you at this point? So at this point, I am just about to turn 27. Wow. Or maybe I'm 27 at the time. Well, you know, I don't want to make too big of an issue of age. I can, yeah. I can hear people out there now going, it's cop harping on the fact that she's <laughs> young. But, you know, we're... Maybe moving past it a little bit now, but it really wasn't all that long ago that that was really not something that was in your favor, right? If you were young, you really did have to overcome that mentality. We talked about it just a little bit ago, but – and also – so I, I did a story earlier in the year on electing more women to the legislature. And one of the things I heard a lot of uh, the new newly elected members that talked with me said, you know, as they were coming up, Their mentality was, well, okay, this job requirement, there's 10 requirements to be qualified for this job. I've only got nine of them. I'm not qualified. Whereas men would be like, well, I have one of them. I'm qualified, right? And so it was overcoming the mentality of what maybe they had been brought up with. And And it's such a fine line, but it really sounds like you had a little hesitation, but not enough to say, no, I'm not going to do it. You were still willing to jump in with both feet. And I find that very admirable. I mean, I definitely had that <laughs> in every position. I mean, even from the fellowship and applying for that. Like, I almost didn't because I'm like, how many people, 500 people apply for, and they only choose 18? Um, but it's really been the network and support group that I've had to, you know, people who have seen something that I didn't necessarily see in myself. And that's why it's super important to me. Like, I have no problem talking about my age or saying how young I am because I know that there are others that are watching. And when they see somebody who's done it before, it tells them, hey, maybe I can do the same thing. And and so, yeah, I, I think, I mean, if you would have asked me, I mean, October will be my 10-year anniversary of working in and out in and around the Capitol. If you would have asked me 10 years ago, are you going to be, you know, would you be interested in the, being the chief of staff to the California State Attorney General? I would say, what the heck does that person even do? Like, I have no idea. Well, and it's worth noting that when you did become chief of staff, it wasn't to a more casual member of the body. I mean, you you became chief of staff to one of the most energetic, ambitious, and I don't mean that in a negative way, uh, members in that body, as indicated by, of course, yeah. now he's the attorney general. That was still a pretty big jump just in the amount of work that you had to do. Did it take you a long time to get adapted to that? Yes, totally. I think I still am adapting to <laughs> it. Um, I mean, the department alone is almost close to 6,000 employees up and down the state. Um, we have offices in Sacramento, Oakland, San Francisco, Fresno, San Diego, Los Angeles. Um, 
especially during COVID when everyone's still remote, it, it was very difficult from going to managing a team as chief of staff in the assembly of maybe 11, 12 in Sacramento in our Oakland office. It was a huge jump. Um, but I remember thinking, and I remember uh, A.G. Monta asking, well, what do you want to do at the department? And I go, well, I know I'm not an attorney. You know, we have about 1,500 attorneys that work within the department, but I want to be in the room where all the decisions are being made because I want to make sure that it's the best decision for the state of California, for the people. And, and that's the one thing I love about the attorney general is he's been so ambitious. And I remember even as a legislator, people saying, oh, my God, your boss cannot choose a subject area. Like mm-hmm. he does not have a main priority and it's he's all over the place. But in his mind, it's California is <laughs> so diverse and mm-hmm. has so many issues that are facing. I'm here to represent, you know, my constituents who have so many different issues that are impacting them. And those are the issues that I want to prioritize. And so, yeah, it was a huge jump. Um, But you could just take it day by day. And again, it goes back to that network and the team we've built. Like you talked about all the, the offices that I'm overseeing now. If I didn't have good, you know, team members that are overseeing, also overseeing each of those individual offices, I probably would be way more stressed out than I am. But it's like I'm the kind of manager that doesn't like to micromanage and really likes people that I trust that I know they're going to do the job and they're there for the right reasons. And that has really been it's a team effort to make. Well, and on top of all of this, my understanding is you're also quite often the conduit between the AG's office and the governor's office, which is a whole different ball of wax compared to just managing people because – Tell me a little bit about that role and what it requires um, and how you <laughs> how long it took you to get comfortable doing that. Yeah. Um, so I think, it, again, it goes back to relationships and knowing I, uh, our office is so big. And I think when we came here, I remember I think it was Nathan Barankin who gave the advice, so former uh, chief deputy to Kamala Harris. And he said, look, there are going to be times that you find out things about your that your office is doing by the, the paper <laughs> the next morning. Try your best to try and figure out how that doesn't happen, but it's like impossible to know what everybody is working on throughout the office. And so I kind of feel like that is my role too, to make sure like we're aware of a lot of things that are going on. Um, and communication with the Gov's office is super important to know, you know, what they're hearing, what's going on, how we can partner together. Um, on issues, I mean, we saw a lot of critical issues, especially last year with the you know, court decision, the Bruin decision, impacting um, folks who are eligible to have guns and where they can carry those guns and then abortion rights and threats to our reproductive freedom um, with the Dobbs decision and, and really needing to tackle that with not only the tools in the toolbox that we have, but partnering with Gov's office, the legislature, all forms of, of you know, different branches of government. And so Jim DeBoo, uh, previous chief of staff to Governor Gavin Newsom, was somebody that I always heard of and knew of but didn't have a relationship. We formed a relationship very quickly (laughs) to where we were always in communication. And then Dana Williamson now, um, I mean, she's also an incredible mentor to me. So she had actually worked on the campaign for uh, attorney general after um, A.G. Bonta had gotten the appointment and then won his race. And so when she got 
um, hired to be Gavin Newsom's, Governor Gavin Newsom's new chief of staff. I said, this is great. We're going to have a good relationship there. And so it's um, it's been great just to have those relationships with each side because I don't know that that was always the case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but the more that folks are working together and in sync and on the same page is what's best for California. Well, and it seems really critical now because – I think I said this earlier, the AG's office more and more has been a key part in policy implementation, a key part of policy making sometimes across so many more areas than maybe what I grew up with when what the AGs were doing. That has to be another one of those things where you might get surprised once in a while that, that you know, your office is going to have to weigh in, as you noted, whether it be abortion or LGBTQ rights or how you know climate policy is implemented, et cetera. Um, you know, what has maybe been the biggest challenge for you in all of that? I think the biggest challenge has been um, one, I mean, knowing everything that this office is capable of and what the, the actual tools that we do have. I mean, we have civil and criminal enforcement duties. We have law enforcement within the Department of Justice, which is very different from other attorney general's offices. And other, I mean, I remember talking to Nevada when they told me they had maybe 700 employees. They don't have law enforcement. Like every Department of Justice just varies across the country. <clears throat> and I think the hardest thing for me was how do we figure out how to use that in spaces where maybe the DOJ didn't get involved with before. Like right now, one of our biggest things is, you know, we're facing a homeless and housing crisis and no other AG has really prioritized um, going after cities who aren't building the required housing that they need to be building. And I remember we had Woodside who was trying to um, make themselves a mountain lion sanctuary to avoid having to build housing. And the AG was like, no, this is ridiculous. Like we need to to make sure we're involved here because this is a big issue. And whether or not Department of Justice has ever been involved in housing before, it's something that we need to create and um, and prioritize. And then one of the offices too, our uh, community awareness response and engagement team, our care team, that was also something we created to have folks in across the state that are working with communities to let them know what we're doing, what resources we have, uh, to hear what's impacting them in different regions of the state. And that has been so helpful in getting the word out of what we're doing and the resources that we have to offer. So we've made a lot of changes um, that have been good because I think to your point, and even, you know, with me in the legislature, I'm like, what is DOJ's public safety? Right. Mm -hmm. But we do that and so much more. I think we touch every single issue Mm -hmm. area um, that you can think of. And so I think it's being creative and how to use the the tools of the office to to really um, prioritize the issues that are impacting Californians. So we're sitting here in this lovely office and I'm gazing across it at a table full of snacks of all kinds. (laughs) And so... uh, you guys made it pretty clear this is this is Rob Bonta's snack snack source here. Um, is this his biggest quirk, or does he? Have, is there another quirk out here out there that um, 
people might want to be might want to know about. Yeah. So I'm not sure that this snack bar over here in this office was made for the attorney general, but he does love <laughs> to to hang out in here before his meetings or calls or before he heads out. Um, but one thing about him, it, it's just incredible. His his energy level is just out of this world. Um, I never see this man tired. And he is always going, I mean, you know, you'll see him too. He has a hard time just sitting down. He's always like pacing when he's on calls or answering emails. So responsive. Um, and now I see why. But sometimes we're on conference calls and we joke about this. He's gone through like three different headphones. Um, <laughs> I'm like, he's walking. He's out. He could, you know, we can hardly hear him because he's in some windstorm. But he's just very active. Very active. I mean, he's still running. Um, we were in Minneapolis last week uh, for a Democratic AG um, convening. And I'm like, hey, okay, we have dinner at this time. And he goes, uh, I'm going to go run two miles and then I'll be there. I'm like, what? Like dinner is starting <laughs> now. What do you mean you're going to go run two miles? He went and he ran and made it in time for dinner. So he's just got an incredible energy level but I think it's something that's needed for a position like this because there's just so much and and the work never stops well clearly well um Viviana Becerra I cannot say thank you enough I really appreciate it it's been fascinating learning more about the AG's office and your story getting here it ought to be inspirational to anybody uh, again not to harp on the age thing but you have accomplished one hell of a lot in your 32 years here so I'm pretty impressed Thank you. Thank you, thank you both for having me. Really, yeah. thank you. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks again to Viviana Becerra, the Chief of Staff for Attorney General Rob Bonta, for coming on the show and sharing a lot of good stuff about her background and, and working in the AG's office. Um, that was a lot of fun. But, of course, now it's time for Who Had the Worst Week in California Politics? The Worst Week. Worst Week. Worst Week. All right, Tim. Well, I want to be careful with this one, okay? Because I, I really want to make sure nobody thinks that we are piling on or worse, making fun of or anything along those lines. But mental health has been the biggest issue, I think, of the year so far, certainly in the conversation. And I know some of the biggest battles were over uh, whether or not um, we were going to change the definition of grave disability. The governor was trying to get a, a big bond measure on the on the ballot, wanted to take a bunch of money from the so-called millionaire's tax to uh, address housing for people who might uh, be affected by a change to the definition of grave disability. And we know for certain that disability rights advocates very strongly opposed all those measures for a variety of reasons. Um, I'm not going to get into the, you know, what we think about those reasons or not. But the reality is all three of those bills, Senate Bill 43 by Susan Eggman, uh, Senate Bill 326 by Susan Eggman, and uh, AB 531 by Jackie Irwin, they all passed all very likely to have the governor's signature. And so I would have to say disability rights advocates to all the folks who oppose those measures, this was not a good end of session week for them. No. And I guess my only caveat there is that I don't believe this is really much of a surprise. 
I mean, the governor has been behind these efforts for most of the session that I've noticed. And so I think it seemed likely that these were going to pass. Now, obviously, there could have been amendments that would have been more uh, to the liking of the disability rights community. But I do feel like this is not a surprise. No, I don't think it was, though. You know, people, many efforts have been made over the years to uh, reform Lanterman Petra Short. None of them have gotten very far. Uh, it'll, it's yet to be seen how much of an impact SB 43 is going to have. So, you know, changing the definition to add people with serious drug problems, because before it, it always applied to people with some kind of a substance abuse problem, but for the most part, it was just alcohol. If you're going to add, you know, um, drug issues as, as part of that definition, that's it has to have a big impact on the numbers of people that maybe would fall under uh, the possibility of, of having, um, you know, that definition be applied to them. So, you know, I think it's going to be a big, big impact. But yes, I think you're right. Um, if this was ever going to happen, though, it seemed like this was the year, right? Because this governor made it really clear through all of his other actions and preceding ones too with care court, et cetera, he really wanted to take a bite out of the apple this year. I think that's where we're at. So yeah, I think uh, they're definitely, definitely not having their best week. Yeah. And there's always someone at the end of session who is going to be a loser when their bill doesn't go the way they want or, or perhaps just gets shelved and, you know, disappears into the ether. So uh, not surprising that someone is opposing bills is going to have a bad week. So, well, there's only what, 1700 or something like that a year they're going to get introduced uh, and, you know, hundreds and hundreds make it through the process and get to the governor. So, yeah, it's a it's orders of magnitude of who is the most uh, upset about how things went during a week. This week, it might, it's probably, you know, these particular group of folks. Next week, it'll be somebody else. It is just the way it goes. That's true. All right, Rich. Well, thanks a lot for guiding us through this one. Absolutely. Have a great week, everybody. See you, Rich. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.